Job has burst out of my preaching schedule. Today will be part one of Job 25 through 27. Next week, Lord willing, will be part two of Job 25 through 27, those being one uh, unit together toward the end of the book of Job. We have been in through the book of Job a 24-chapter game of philosophical chicken. The situation has two main components. Job has suffered greatly. He lost his family, lost all of his wealth, lost his home, lost even his own physical health up to the point of death. And two, Job is a righteous man. Job has not done anything to deserve this suffering allowed by God. Well, how can that be true? How can a good man experience so many bad things? Isn't God fair? Something has to give. Someone has to flinch first. Either one, Job will have to admit that he's wrong. Job will have to admit that he has sinned greatly. This is what his friends have been trying to convince him of the entire book. You have sinned greatly, Job. That's why this is happening to you. Or two, Job's friends are going to have to admit that they don't know anything. That God may have some grand design, some purpose that they can't imagine and they don't know about. Or three, God would be proven wrong. God would be proven to be unjust because God is unfair and has allowed Job to suffer even though he's righteous. Well, through the book of Job, we've been going back and forth, back and forth between Job's friends. Bildad accuses Job. Job replies, Elihu accuses Job. Then Job replies to him. Eliphaz accuses Job. Job replies to him. And over and over, well, if you say that, then that means that God is in the wrong. And the situation has divulged to where they're calling each other stupid and using sarcasm. No one's budging. The friends say Job must have sinned. God can't be wrong. Job is maintaining that he did not sin. He does not deserve this suffering. And God, God has been conspicuously silent. Now we've come to chapter 25, the last stand of Job's three friends. Bildad gets called up. He comes to give the closing argument from the, pros- from, from the prosecution. And this is supposed to be the three friends' gotcha moment. Notice where we are in the book and where we are going in the next few weeks. In chapter 25, this very short little chapter, six verses, but sharp argument is Bildad's closing argument for the friends, the last of those three friends. And then it's Job talking all the way from 26 through chapters 31, verse 40. You can flip over and see how the end of chapter 31 ends in verse 40. From 26 through 31, 40, we have Job talking, and then it says there, the words of Job are ended. That's a significant break in the book. So, chapter 25, we have the friend's last argument. We get the hotshot attorney, Bildad. He gets the last words. And then Job is going to give his 
long closing statement, his long closing argument in chapters 26 through 31. Well, up front, how does this work? What does Bildad say? How can Bildad solve the case? What is Bildad's big final closing argument? Everyone has seen the attorney movies. The closing argument is the climax of the film where Matthew McConaughey, hopefully with his shirt on, will give the final argument for the case. Is Job a sinner or is God unjust? Bildad's final defense, his final prosecutorial prosecution is no man can be pure before God. It's the first part of today's sermon. Bildad says, final defense, no man can be pure before God. It's the last word from the three friends. Job's response, the initial response in his closing argument, the answer to this dilemma lies beyond the outskirts of the knowledge of God's ways. That's the second part of the sermon. The answer lies beyond the outskirts of the knowledge of God's ways. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning as we sit here and open your word to hear it, not only with our ears, not only to hear the words today, but to spiritually understand them about ourselves, about you, that we might be convicted of sin, that we might be helped to believe in all the ways that we need to be convicted and corrected in our thinking and our living. Would you help us? Help us be humble to receive correction from your word in all the ways that we need to be encouraged, Father. Keep persevering in faith through suffering, through trial, through temptation. Help us be encouraged. Comfort, strengthen what is weak and troubled. We pray, Father, for your word to do these things, for your glory, for our joy, in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 25, Bildad's closing argument, No man can be pure before God. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but if you want to go read and look at this later, there's a chiastic structure in verses 2 through 6. God is very high, man is very low in verse 2 and 6. There are any number to the armies and to the light in verse 3. There is the moon and the stars in verse 5. And then in the middle of that structure, two questions asking the same thing. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? This is Bildad's great argument. Now, is Bildad right? Is this true? Notice that Bildad is asking a lot of questions, but he's actually making an assertion about Job. Job, okay, you have maintained that you did nothing to deserve this suffering. You've been talking about this for a while, Job. But let's just get down to some simple fundamental theology to once and for all solve this dilemma. The theology of the depravity of man and the holiness of God, Job. Just think about all mankind, Job. God is way up there We are way down here. 
How could any man, Job, we're not just talking about you, Job, how could any man possibly be righteous before God? And as Job says these, or as uh, Bildad says these words, I imagine his other friends, Eliphaz and Zophar, in, in the gallery, clapping and cheering. Here, here, yeah, good argument. And they look at each other and they look at Bildad. Oh, he's really trapped Job now. And Bildad continues to drive. You see, it's not personal, Job. It's not just about you, it's all of us, Job. Mankind is like a maggot before God, a worm to God in comparison. So, Job, it's okay. No one is right before God. No man born of a woman can be pure before God. Because God is so high, and we are like maggots and worms in comparison. Are maggots and worms holy? Job and Eliphaz and Zophar stand to their feet, clapping, welcoming Bildad back to the chair, rubbing his shoulders like a boxer coming back to the corner in the ring. What's Job going to possibly say in defense of this argument? Well, is Bildad right? He is right, isn't he? That's what the Bible says. It's what we read this morning. Paul summarizes this teaching all through the book of Romans. Or actually, he expounds on it. Romans chapter 1, we can know God's power and nature through creation, but we all reject Him. Romans 3, we might have the Word of God as Steve read this morning, but his revelation of himself, it actually says that we're all sinners. Romans 5, Paul explains that as descendants of Adam, we all die because we all keep sinning like Adam kept sinning. Sin keeps getting from past to generation to generation. It's part of the whole point of the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. The descendants of Adam, they keep dying because they keep sinning. Sin had begun to reign. There are none who are righteous, not even Noah, not even Abraham, not even Moses, not even David. They are all dead, 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 dead. As in Ephesians, we are by nature children of wrath. In summary, Paul puts it this way in Romans 3, remembering Scripture from the Old Testament, there are none who are righteous. No, not one. A short walk through the Ten Commandments will just reveal that about ourselves. You ever hated someone? It's like murdering them. You ever lusted after someone in your heart or your mind? It's like adultery. You ever lied? Thank God no one here is a liar. Amen? No one here has ever lied. That's not good. We know that's not true. You ever stolen something? You ever been jealous, coveted, ungrateful? We know that we're not pure. Not like God is. Bildad's right in his theology. He's right in his theology about mankind, yet at the same time he's wrong about this one man. Job's suffering is not the result of Job's sin. In this way, Bildad is wrong. Job's suffering is not the consequence of Job's sin. Bildad thinks that by espousing common knowledge and universal theology, he can nail down every single question and answer about suffering in the world. Let's take a little bit of theology and stretch it and apply it to every single situation. You can answer all the questions. 
But one thing the book of Job is teaching us is that some theology may be true, but in God's providence applied uniquely in redemptive history. Remember how the book starts before Job begins suffering. Job 1.1 tells us there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was a blameless, an upright man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Remember when Satan was roaming the earth and God is the one himself who suggested to Satan to turn his attention to Job. Why? Job 1.8, the Lord himself, God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. Blameless. An upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now in one sense, this is what the Bible says about Job. Blameless. What does God say about Job? Blameless. There's no one like him. But also, Bildad is right. How can any man be born of a woman be pure before God? That's good theology, Bildad. But it's a bad closing argument with Job, Bildad. The problem with the dilemma is this one man. This one man who is different from, quote, all the other men on the earth. Is it possible? Is it possible that Job was a righteous man and suffering? Does God have space for that in His moral economy? The book of Job is saying yes. The whole point of the book of Job is not about Job. It's all a setup to the possibility of the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, in the mind of God's people who were reading Job for the first time. It's true that God did not give Job suffering because of Job's sin. That's the point of the book in chapters 1 through 3. But Jesus is the ultimate answer in God's redemptive history to Bildad's question in his closing argument. The arguments of Job's friends are constantly begging for Jesus. Listen to Bildad's question again in chapter 1, verse 4. How? The implication being it's impossible, Job. How? Can a man be born of a woman be pure? It's not a knock against women. It's just a reference to Job being human. How can any human be pure before God? What's the Bible's answer? Man can't be pure before God. All have sinned. We're all part of the testimony that we cannot be pure like God. We keep dying because we keep sinning. Yet there's this, this one way... If a man is born of a woman, yet he's also the son of God. The language about Job is a shadow of Jesus himself. For Jesus is truly, inherently in his person, blameless, upright, feared God in full obedience, turned away from all evil in heart, mind, and soul, and truly, like Job, Jesus most fully, you could say, there was none like Jesus on the earth. You might be one of those people who are sinfully already enjoying the Christmas decorations at Home Depot or Walmart. That's a joke. I'm only half serious. 
The, the truth that Christians highlight at Christmas are part of the hope of the book of Job. Jesus was born of a woman. But that woman was a virgin. And Jesus is also the Son of God. This is how Jesus could be truly born of a woman, a man like us, and yet be without Adam's sin. Remember, Mary was told by the angel in regards to her firstborn son. Luke chapter 1, verse 29 through Look at 30 through 35. And the angel said to Mary, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Remember Bill, that's the first argument? God's way up there, we're way down here. We're like maggots and worms. But this man will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, the earthly throne, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called... Holy. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was born of a woman, like Bildad said, yet the angel said, Call this man Holy. Call this man what we call God. Holy. That, that's what God is in His character, in His nature, in His power. <coughs> this man is pure and holy, upright like God. Can you imagine? <coughs> There's a man that's not like any other man. Jesus is pure. Jesus is upright. No sin. A man with no sin. <clears throat> There's something encouraging about the thought of it. A man with no sin. We're going to explore what that means more next week, but consider the gravity of the possibility. Since Adam, the first man, sinned, we've all been sinning and dying. Sin, 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 dying, dying, dying. Ever since God first told Adam that if he sinned, he would die. And Adam sinned and he was separated from God's fellowship. Spiritual death immediately. And then his body went back into the ground from where he came. He died physically. And so has been the nature of man ever since. And build that is right. God's way up there. We're way down here. Even though we're created in the image of God, our sin has made us like maggots before him. How can any of us say that we're pure before God? And then this one man comes along, born of a virgin, the Son of God. Is it possible? What does it mean? If it's true, it's really, really good news. Someone has broken the cycle. Someone was born of a woman. They were fully human, but they were righteous. So what happened to Jesus 
Oh, so good things must have come to Jesus. Good things to good people, bad things to bad people, right? Except what happened to Jesus, this righteous Son of God, He died too. Then it gets even stranger than fiction. He raised from the dead. He did not suffer because He sinned. He was without sin, yet He suffered Jesus died to take on the punishment, the suffering deserved for the sin of the rest of mankind. And when Jesus raised from the grave, He proves that He was and is the righteous Son of God. Not just a man. And it proves that whoever believes in His suffering, being for your sin, can be forgiven of their sin. Have you settled this? Have you considered this? That there is a man who is upright before God. It's not us. It's not me. It's not you. It was true for Job in the sense that his suffering was not the result of sin, but it was true for Christ and he was absolutely without sin. Bill Dead's theology was right except for Job who was typifying Jesus. That's the way a man can be pure before God. Today, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, sinners like me and like you can find ourselves pure and upright before God because of our righteousness. No, we've sinned. But because of Jesus' righteousness. Because of Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, even though He had no sin Himself. So we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 130, verse 3-4, through 4, If you, O Lord, should mark your iniquities... Oh Lord, who could stand? Who could stand before God when He counts iniquities? But we can sing the next line too. But with you forgiveness, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Romans 5.17 puts it this way, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Although all men born in the world cannot be right before God, through that one man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all who believe and repent can be right before God. That's how a man born of a woman, that's how any human, any man, boy, or girl can be right before God. By Jesus dying to forgive your sins and raising from the dead. Which leads to the question Job answers. How is this possible? How can a man be pure before God? In all of God's order and structure in the world, how can it be that someone who is righteous and without sin is actually allowed, ordained, willed to suffer under God's sovereignty? How is that morally possible? Because for Bildad, he's suggesting it's impossible. Job can't be righteous and suffer. And it doesn't make sense in the Gospel. Why would Jesus be righteous and suffer? That would mean that God is unjust. And listen, there are many today who call themselves Christians and yet call God unjust. 
for submitting his son, Jesus, to appease his own wrath. Formally and technically, it would be referred to as a denial of penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus died because he was loving. Jesus died as a good example. But he did not die to appease God's wrath. It wasn't God who forced him or pushed him or made him go to the cross. God would never do that. Because that would mean God is unjust. Bildad's final answer is men are all sinners, therefore Job is a sinner. Case closed. Bildad's friends rest their case. The New Testament answer is how can a man born of a woman be pure and upright before God? Well, if he's God, it's a New Testament answer. But Job defends himself and God with this answer. Bildad, your problem is that you are living in the outskirts of the knowledge of God's ways. The second part of the sermon. Bildad's response is, you're living in the outskirts of the knowledge of God's ways. In other words, you think there's no such thing as a suffering righteous person in God's immoral economy in history. In short, Job is claiming, Bildad, you don't know God. You don't know Him truly. Bildad knows much about God as I know about the president of China. Just some outskirts. Just some news from a distance. I don't really know him. I've never sat down and spoke with him. I don't know if he has a family or children or what he likes to eat for dinner at night. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the depths of God? Do you know him? Job is saying Bildad's problem, why he is so stuck in this dilemma of the righteous suffering, is because he doesn't really know God. Have you considered all that God is willing to do and the reasons for His purposes? Look at chapter 26, 1-14. through 14. Job says the answer to this dilemma lies beyond the outskirts of His ways. Then Job answered and said, How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom. How plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words? And with whose breath, whose breath has come out from you? Just in case you're not fluent in this language, let me help you. This is called sarcasm. Job's mocking his friend's elementary last stand. Big words, Bildad. Who helped you write that speech? Did your mom sit up with you late last night help you, help you, help you put that together? I mean, where does this come from? And then Job takes Bildad's little speech up a notch. Do you think we're maggots and God is way up there? It's worse than you think. The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God. The place of the dead is naked before God. And Abaddon has no covering. Job goes straight to the fearful fact that nothing, nothing is hidden from God. You think I don't know about man's sinfulness? God sees it all, everywhere. 
Verse 7, He stretches out the north over the void. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up waters in His thick clouds and the cloud does not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon. He spreads over it its cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble. They were astounded at His rebuke. By His power, He stilled the sea. By His understanding, He shattered Rahab. And by His wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Everyone who's been saying that through the book of Job over and over and over, God is the sovereign creator. God is the sustainer of the universe. He is high. He is limitless in His power. But, Job concludes, verse 14, Behold, these are the outskirts of His ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of Him. But the thunder of His power, who can understand? Job says to the friends, you guys, do you speak thunder? I don't think so. Knowing God's power is not the whole expansive knowledge of who God is and what He's willing to do. That God is very high and we are very low is not the expansive knowledge of our relationship with God and what God is willing to do. God's power, these things, are but the outskirts of His ways. These are but whispers of what God is willing to do and can do in the earth. His calming the sea, His calming the storms, the power over the pillar of heavens and the boundary between light and darkness, these are but the outskirts of His ways. There's something deeper about God, something more personal to His counsel and His will. What Bildad and friends are suggesting is not too different from the common knowledge that makes every man on earth inexcusable. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, to all mankind, because God has shown it to them. For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they, all mankind, are without excuse. So Job says to Bildad, yeah, everybody knows that God is high and powerful. Just look at the sun. Look at the order of the universe. Yes, God is powerful. But Bildad, you cannot conceive what God is otherwise willing to do. The friend's theology, their thoughts, their study, their thinking about God is shallow. Their God lives in a moral box that they built in their garage. Job's response is that in his power, that his friends keep referring to is just the beginning of God's ways. This is Job's last defense of his righteousness and God's. And here is the case. One of two people are wrong. Either Job is wrong, he actually has great sin, he deserves this great suffering, God is allowed, or God is wrong, God is wrong for allowing Job to suffer because Job was a blameless, upright man who feared God. Maybe the friends are wrong. 
This is the last offense, the closing argument to Job's friends. Who is wrong here, Job or God? Is Job a sinner or is God unjust? And the friends are right about Job. Job's answer is the right answer all along. You guys don't understand God. It's neither. Job's not wrong because he did not sin to deserve this suffering. And God is not wrong because your knowledge about what God is able and willing to do is limited and shallow. You want to answer this question, you have to expand your categories of who God is, what He can, and what He will do. Job's last defense of himself and God is this. God and His purposes and His providence are more grand, more terrible, more fearful, more wonderful, more holy, more mysterious than you can know. God's ways stretch far beyond what you want to call our little maggot minds, Bildad. The little ideas where God is only good if He gives good people good things and bad people bad things. Where God is only just if He's fair, like we think He should be fair. You've probably never seen this, but could you imagine, or maybe you have seen this, I hope not. Have you ever seen a grown man trying to do the backstroke in the kiddie pool? I mean, just imagine the scene. Grown adult laid back, taking it very seriously, trying to do a backstroke in one foot of water. That's what Job's friends are trying to do. They're trying to get 5,000 feet deep answers from one feet deep theology. We have some sentences in the Bible that we need to wrestle with. A few examples... Romans 9, as it is written, Paul says, God loved Jacob. He hated Esau. Romans 9, 18, in regards to God, He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. Romans 9.22 What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, people, prepared for destruction? Genesis 50, chapter, chapter 50, verse 20 Joseph to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. One evil act 
the will of man and the will of God behind the one. We tend to think, it's been my experience, that the deeper we go into the difficult doctrines of God, the more confusing the world becomes. Let me repeat that. We tend to think that if we go deeper into the difficult doctrines of God, the world become more confusing to us. But it's actually the exact opposite. Job's friends remain in the outskirts of the knowledge of God. And they remain the ones who are befuddled and confused and even irritated by what God allows in His providence. Contrary to what you first might think, the deeper your understanding of God, the simpler the world becomes to you. Job has been holding this simple line all the way from Job 1 until now. What he told his wife at the end of chapter 1. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not also receive evil? I.e., who are we to direct and judge the Lord God? The deeper your thoughts about God, the simpler the world becomes to you. The shallower your thoughts about God, the more confusing the world will be. Great suffering in particular will be wholly disorienting to you. Job maintains a category where God does whatever God decides is wise. Job doesn't know why. He doesn't know why. He's frustrated not knowing why. He moans and he groans not knowing why. He doesn't understand and he wishes God would just go ahead and let him die because he doesn't understand why. But Job holds this. He didn't deserve this suffering because of his sin. And God's not wrong for causing him to suffer. They're both true. This is beyond the outskirts of God. Part of those deep things about God. Friends, let me encourage you. Heed Job's defense. Venture beyond the outskirts of the knowledge of God. You might believe, you might be tempted to believe that you can find God to be more tolerable, not as dangerous, not too unbearable, not bothering you too much in your world if you just stick to the outskirts of God's ways. Just stick to the Sunday school stuff. The Bible tells me that Jesus loves me. But then, when unexplainable suffering comes along, will it hold? What prepares us to suffer and sometimes what suffering teaches us is the absolute, mysterious, wonderful ways of God. Be prepared to be disappointed, confused, and have your faith utterly gutted and challenged if God is totally predictable to you. Now you're going to be good. God's going to give you good things. You're going to go to church. God's going to give you a house and a baby. 
You work hard, God's going to give you that job. You pray, God's going to give you that spouse. But until we've had to go to God and say, God, that's not fair. We haven't yet explored beyond the outskirts. On the outskirts of the knowledge of God, everything is tidy. Your world is not too bothered. And typically you will end up places like Job's friends, where man is very free, and God is bound up in a little moral box. Job is saying, get past the outskirts of God, and see that God is sovereign, and God is totally free to do whatever He pleases. Have you read a book lately that challenged your thinking about God? You should. We should listen to those who've gone past the outskirts and want to help us think deeply about God. Do so humbly. Do it together with someone else. Say to someone else, hey, let's, let's read a book that's a little bit over our heads. If nothing else, for the practice of humility and remembering that God is God and we're men. I've been doing this myself lately, reading a book by a PhD from Georgetown University that is about Christian nationalism. And for several pages of the book, I've had to look up words. Just reminding me, I, I don't know everything. Read all the Bible. Read all the Bible. Do you read all the Bible? Do you read all the parts of the Bible? Do you read all the books of the Bible? Do you read the confusing parts of the Bible? Is there a part of the Bible that you try to steer away from in your morning devotion because it might be too confusing, it might not... Why not maybe be so encouraging when actually some of those deep parts about God are actually the places where the answers for our suffering that afternoon are going to be? Friends, don't limit your daily Bible reading or your family devotion to things like 365 verse calendars. Read all the Bible. Listen, you're not going to go to Lifeway. We're not going to go to Lifeway because those stores are gone online, but Mardell or whatever... You're not going to go find a 365-day, one-verse-a-day calendar with 1 Samuel 15.3 on it. 1 Samuel 15.3, God says to Samuel, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel, and donkey. Can you explain God for your own sake or for your brother's and sister's sake or for the lost world's sake? What in the world is going on in 1 Samuel 15, 3? Get this. You will find comfort by learning the deep things of God in the Bible. Or you will potentially be confused by shallow thinking 
when God brings suffering into your life. You'll find comfort by learning the deep things of God in your Bible. You'll be prepared for suffering. Or you'll be confused by shallow thinking when God allows suffering in your life. That's the point of Job. That's where Job's friends are. Small God, small box, highly irritated, highly confused. Read through the whole Bible. Read all of it. And then ask her if I could share this, so I might pay for this later, but it's a, it's a good thing. But that's been reading through the Bible, one of those chronological Bibles the last year or so. puts the Bible in a chronological order for you. And one of the things I've been so grateful to watch as she reads through that is the questions that she's come up with. As she just reads passages that she might not otherwise read. Passages about what God is doing, what God is allowing, and why. Let me encourage you to have really long discussions over who God is. And the difficulties about what God is allowing in your life, in the life of our church, in the world, in the news. Let life group go late into the night. Go to work tired the next day. So often we get into a territory, and especially we get into groups where we have to say things, where God seems uncontrollable, He seems free, it challenges our thinking, and we just want to shut off. I just want to stay on the outskirts. I just want to stay out here where it's simple and, and easy. Now that's deep, that, that's hard, that's scary, and it feels shaky. But what is really scary is being Job's friends. Staying on the outskirts. Missing God altogether. I won't share his name, but I was at Simeon Trust Workshop last week. Or two weeks ago. Last week, two weeks ago? I don't know, time's weird. We are going through the book of Romans, and one of the guys in, in my small group had Romans chapter 9. Some of those passages I just read. No more than a sixth grade education and a GED. His first Simeon Trust workshop ever to come learn how to preach and study the Bible. And he was given Romans chapter 9 to prepare a worksheet and present to a group of pastors so that they could help him correct his worksheet. Here's something interesting that happened. He went through the structure of Romans 9 and I'm telling you, it was just beautiful. Beauty, it was wonderful structure. First question, first part of his worksheet. God is sovereign. God can choose who his children are. God chose Jacob over Esau. God hardens whom he wills. God chooses. God has different vessels of clay for this and vessels of clay for this. And, and who are we to argue? And he just shows us the structure. Shows us Paul's argument about God's sovereignty. And then the rest of his worksheet has answers like, even though God knows some things, man is free to do all of these. And as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, wait, 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 wait a second. You, you had all this high theology of God, but then when it came to you understanding the passage, you, you shifted from God is sovereign to man is free. Why did you do that? I actually caught up with him after the class and I just said, hey man, it sounded like you were reading this and you read something else. What's going on? He just said flat out, I'm not a Calvinist. 
I couldn't help what I saw in the passage, but I didn't want to say it. Because I don't know how to believe that. I don't know what that means. Now, this is not about Calvinism. This is about, does the Bible say what it says, and will you let it say what it says? And every single word in line, when it means God is more wonderful, more fearful, more sovereign, more mysterious than we can imagine. Read a book which takes you into the depths of God. Students, life is going to force questions that you are not even thinking that you need to ask right now. Read your Bible. All of it. Watch God get bigger and bigger. Parents, when you're reading the Bible with your kids, when you are reading the Bible with your kids, are you skipping any parts? Do you read ahead and think, oh, well, let's not read about jail getting a nail through the head and judges. Read it all. Don't hide God from your children by not exposing the Bible to them at home. Why raise your children on the outskirts? Students, let me just encourage you as you grow in the Lord and grow to understand God to keep asking more questions, not less. Our church is, and I want it to become a place where you're supposed to ask more questions to learn the difficult things of God. One of my favorite things that our youth have done over the years, especially when I get to go and enjoy it myself, is those youth question nights. We just put whatever question you have into a hat, and then we'll take it out one at a time and see if we can answer them. <laughs> I mean, that's fun, guys. You want to talk about having a good time. I love it. Adults, you never grow out of this. Maybe it'd be good for your life group just to have a question night as adults. If you really want to look past the outskirts of the knowledge of God, go to the deeper things. You need, you need not actually look much further than the gospel itself. Where the righteous Son of God, who was born of a virgin, suffered for sinners. There is there the crucifixion of the Son of God the righteous for the unrighteous, there is, as it were, deep magic. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not itself make sense on the outskirts of theology. The gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, the Son of God, born of a virgin, that is the deep stuff. In the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis, Lucy and Susan watch helplessly as the demonic beasts tie down the great lion, Aslan, and then slay him. In order to spare Edward, the wayward king, the great lion had given himself up in his place to die because of his sin. But as soon as the girls make their way to Aslan, they find his slain body is missing. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have just left the body alone. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it, is it magic? Yes, cried the great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. And they looked around and there shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again. They'd shaved it off 
there stood Aslan himself. Oh, you're real, you're, you're real, oh Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. And here's Lewis at his best. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there was a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked back a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now, oh yes, now, said Lucy, jumping and clapping her hands. Oh children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. Isn't the witch the description of Job's friends? Their knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. Just getting to the outskirts of the knowledge of God. The deeper magic of God, as it were, is that His Son, the righteous Son born of a woman, was crucified for sinners. Like me. And like you. Like what is unfair to Job, it seemed unfair to Christ. Like what was unfair for Aslan was unfair for God as a man. And it's gracious and it's undeserving for sinners. It is God way past the outskirts. God submitting His Son, sending His Son to the worst suffering and death. And that Son submitting Himself to the desire, to the will of God. So that God, in His sovereignty and in His plan, would save sinners, the descendants of Adam, back to Himself. These are the deep things of God. The gospel is way beyond the outskirts. Do you know God passed the outskirts of shallow, popular, CNN, Fox theology? Have you minimized what you've heard about God to a couple of blogs or news articles or verses from when you were a child? Listen to what Isaiah prophesied about Jesus in the gospel. He said, Somehow it is the will of the Lord to crush His own innocent Son. Somehow by Jesus' wounds in God's plans, by His wounds we're healed. Somehow in God's strange plan, His suffering brings us peace. That is so far beyond do good and get good. Do bad and get bad in return. Job's friends didn't like that God. Do you? Have you been astounded at the depths of what God is willing to do through His Son, Jesus Christ, for you? Consider the ways of God beyond the outskirts 
a man born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. That man, Jesus Christ, pure and upright before God, being the Son of God, that man was subjective, subjected to crucifixion and to death. It's all part of God's unimaginable, providential ways of His love and grace and salvation for sinners for His glory. So that those who have done bad might receive great good from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, the book of Job. Help us think, dwell, meditate, and grow in our understanding of who you are and what you've done. Thank you for your mercy that while we have sinned against you, the one who did not sin was crucified and suffered so that we could be forgiven of our sin and paid for our sin. He paid the debt so that our debt could be canceled. He rose from the grave. Father, thank you. Father, as we suffer this week, things that we are in the midst of suffering, injustices on the part of men, what might feel like injustice on your part, help us to expand our categories of what you are willing to do by looking at the cross of Jesus and seeing him your son, for us. Father, by this, help us worship you, love others, be patient, trust you, be at peace. We love you, Father. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.